0: 1208, and we've reached something of a climax with Hebrews chapter 10 after a number of weeks leading up to this, uh, a climax for us because it's part of our annual vision this year, uh, these verses, this passage, and in particular verse 23. When we get to it, I'll get us all to say it together. I hope we've been learning it over these last few weeks. Uh, it's headed, A Call to Persevere, on page 1208, verse 19, a call to persevere. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now, everybody say the next verse with me. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let's not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. I wonder if you've seen this. This is the CEO of Starbucks. Uh, He has said, we're not in the coffee business serving people. We're in the people business serving coffee. Um, I don't know if the food bank people, Dan Frith and the others, might echo that. We're not in the food business serving people, we're in the people business, serving food to those who don't have enough. Uh, Starbucks also incidentally said, we don't sell coffee, we sell an experience. Do you like that? And most famously, in just three words, uh, Starbucks, the third space. Isn't that brilliant? Uh, You have two main spaces in your life, home and work. When you're not at either of those, you ought to be in Starbucks. Because it's the third space. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, And notice the relational nature of all of those, um, the experiential nature, almost metaphysical. Well, you know our motto for this year is speak hope. Now, who said this? Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Do you remember that? It was the disciples on the Emmaus Road after Jesus had drawn alongside them. They didn't recognize him. In fact, they rebuked him. Don't you know what's been going on over these last few days? And the one thing that they reminded themselves and reminded this apparent stranger of was that Jesus was a prophet, powerful in word and deed. It was Cleopas who said that. Jesus, mighty in word and deed, his ministry was a ministry of word and deed, of teaching as he went around speaking, and of action as he went around working, working extraordinary miracles, works of compassion and so on. Now, Jesus passes that ministry to us, both to speak and to work. Jesus told his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, you are to be both the salt of the earth and the light of the world, with at least the hint of the illusion to season the earth with our love and to enlighten the world with the truth of the gospel. So, as you know, we often advertise that we're attempting, albeit fallibly, very fallibly, to exercise a ministry here of both word and spirit. Maybe it's equally important we should say our ministry is one of words and deeds. The emphasis of our annual vision this year is in those two words, speak hope. The words. Why have we given that emphasis uh, it's in that verse, of course, verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Why that emphasis? Well, as James Lawrence said who uh, recently, who uh, spoke at one of our weekends, didn't he? He's a leader of leaders in the Church of England. And he said this, in fact, last week. Talking with a friend recently... We identified that mission is increasingly embraced within the church, but evangelism continues to struggle to hold our attention, let alone be a priority. And then he quotes Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who just recently has delivered the Lambeth Lecture on Evangelism, reflecting the priority of evangelism and witness and how we might shape the church to engage in effective evangelism today. So, speak hope. Our Christian hope isn't one we hold just at church or at home, but unswervingly in every place we go, to work, to the shops, to our neighbors. It isn't a hope we're to hold to ourselves in private or in silence. It's a hope we profess and publicly That will require selfless faith and guts. We'll need God's power for that, which he promises. He who promised is faithful. So speak hope. But it shouldn't surprise us what the very next verse says. Just look at it. Verse 24. And, and what? And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. So in 23 and 24, we have both of them, do you see? Words and deeds, the two again going together. Um, I'm continually humbled when I see this among you. One of you in church today wrote this to me last week. We're now organizing ourselves to sell maybe a quarter of what we own and have promised the proceeds to one of St. Mark's mission partners we want to be better stewards of what God gives us in the future someone I worked for years ago used to say live simply so that others can simply live just astonishing amazing And what a great saying, live simply so that others can simply live. So as with Jesus, so also the followers of Jesus. We're to speak the hope, communicating it in words, and we're to demonstrate the hope, communicating it in loving good deeds. And today our reading encourages us to both. To integrate our speaking and our working, what we say and what we do. Now, the rest of the New Testament reinforces that. Paul says the same in Colossians chapter 3. Whatever you do, he says, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, May our Lord Jesus encourage your hearts and strengthen you in what? In every good deed and word. Must have been thinking of Jesus, mustn't he? His example. So that in Ephesians chapter 4, he adds, We are to speak the truth in love. Puts it in one little phrase. So our calling as Christians is to be and to share good news. That's what evangelism is. The word evangel simply means good news. We're to be good news, indeed, and to share it in word. The calling on the church is, if you want technical terms, not to proselytize the vogue bogey word, but to evangelize. And that good news, with a capital G and a capital N, is the gospel of Jesus, Its definition is not so narrow that it's restricted to a core formulaic message. But neither is it so broad that it's widened to encompass everything in the universe considered to be good and helpful. It is specifically the good news Jesus brought in word and deed, in his person, his teaching, and his works, climaxing in his finished work in his death on the cross. And it's the calling upon all of us at home, in church, in the workplace, among friends, and in our neighborhood. It's not restricted to particular times, or places, or people, or activities. It is all-encompassing and universal for followers of Jesus. Now, we're to do other things than share the good news of Jesus. We are to breathe to eat and drink, to put on clothes, to go to work, and from time to time to sleep. But the point is, there is no sphere that is out of bounds for the good news of Jesus, where sharing Jesus is excluded in either deed or word. Now, each without the other is inadequate. To speak gospel truths in a vacuum of love is like trying to light a fire in the rain. Our words will be wet. But to demonstrate good deeds in a vacuum of truth is like trying to light a fire without oxygen. Our deeds won't catch light without our breath. Now, why is this so? Well, the first is more obvious than the second. Words without deeds can be very off-putting, a stumbling block to faith. It feels like hypocrisy. The person who doesn't practice what they preach, it causes great offense. That's obvious. Mahatma Gandhi supposedly said, I would become a Christian if Christians were more like their Christ. Yeah, we laugh, but nervously, don't we? Jesus himself was utterly consistent. He practiced what he preached. Words without deeds are a stumbling block to faith. Now, that's the more obvious, but here's the less obvious. It's equally true that deeds without words may lead people astray. What is a Christian? A Christian is a sinner forgiven through the blood of Christ by the love and grace of God. A Christian is a forgiven sinner. And no one will ever learn that No amount of loving deeds will ever explain that unless we tell them. You see, loving good deeds don't tell you that. Unexplained good deeds may, in fact, preach the opposite to the gospel of grace. They may confuse the gospel. If we're known to be a Christian and we're known for our good works the world around us will deduce that good works are what makes you a Christian. That a Christian is someone who gains God's acceptance by good deeds. Rather than a gospel of justification by grace, we may by our silence preach a gospel of self-justification by works. I dare to say that because the world lives in an atmosphere of ungrace. That's what typifies and characterizes the world in which we live, the world in which everybody lives. It's a world of ungrace. Moreover, I dare to say every single religious system in the world is a system of ungrace, of justification by works. Religious works, compassionate works are what earns your acceptance with God and everybody will assume that that's what the Christian faith is by your good deeds unless you tell them the opposite instead of leading people to Christ your loving good deeds may lead them away from Christ now of course it's better to love people than not to love them it does make life happier But if our love is never interpreted, it's probably better people don't know that you're a Christian. The point is this. Once we're known as a follower of Jesus, the stakes are very high. And it has to be both. You can't choose between deeds and words. If we talk the talk but don't walk the talk we will offend people. And our witness will be counterproductive. But if we walk the walk, but don't talk the walk, our witness will be confusing. Our witness must be both to speak hope and to demonstrate it in action. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do and the things that you say. They read your gospel, whether faithless or true. So what is the gospel according to you? Now, the potential tank trap to left and right is highlighted in Luke chapter 10. Would you just turn in your Bibles to Luke's gospel, chapter 10? I haven't got the page number. Somebody tell you. Turn over from Hebrews into the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you get to John, you've gone too far. Luke chapter 10, page 1041, where you get the quintessentially classic teaching of Jesus on loving, loving your neighbor. First, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And who is my neighbor? Asked the Jewish teacher. Now, notice in verse 25, he was an expert in the law. This is the religious wordsmith par excellence. And Jesus, in reply, humbles the Jewish lawyer by turning the tables. He doesn't say, your neighbor is anyone you see in need as you walk along the road. Why? Even if you see a marginalized Samaritan in crisis. He doesn't say that. In the story, it's the Jewish man who is in desperate trouble and the Samaritan who saves him. Today it would be something like this. Um, A city businessman is passing through Clapham Junction on his way back from work in the city and he's mugged late at night. And everybody passes him by, apart from a homeless man who had been sitting in the pavement. And he got up and he bound up his wounds and he rescued him, helped him, helped him to find his way home. Gone is any idea of us being the bountiful donor out of the abundance of all our resources. Jesus looks at this privileged leader and he says, Your neighbor is the person who rescues you when you are utterly helpless, when he has every reason to hate you. You see, Samaritans were despised by Jews, weren't they? So there's a humbling warning to the self-righteous teacher of words. And notice in verse 29, he was self-righteous. He wanted to justify himself. But immediately after this, you have another lesson on service, on loving your neighbor. The account of Mary and busy, busy Martha. Martha opened her home to Jesus, verse 38, but not her heart. She opened her service, but not her spirit. And she said something to Jesus she should never have ever thought. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? And then she made an even worse mistake. Fancy telling the Son of God what to do. Tell her to help me. And while Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, Martha, verse 40, was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And Jesus again says the unexpected. Martha, Martha, verse 41, you're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better. It won't be taken from her. So there's a humbling warning, this time to the self-righteous doer of good deeds. It tells us the shocking truth that serving is always very close to sinning. When it's done out of pride and sometimes guilt or obligation. So that our speaking and our serving together are immensely powerful, but always being tested. Although sharing the good news is the most natural, positive, humble, and gracious act, it's one beggar telling another where to find bread, whether it's physical bread or spiritual bread. It's one lifeboat survivor reaching a hand and a lifebelt to one who's still in the water. Nevertheless, there's a spiritual enemy who hates it and will do anything to prevent it. His main tactics, as you know, are distortion, misrepresentation, intimidation and fear, confusion and deviation, targeting the confidence of faith and assurance of calling of us as believers and of the church community as a whole. Now, that's why confession from the vicar now. That's why I feel continually challenged and nervous when I talk about Jesus. Whether to a friend or a stranger, even though I know deep down it is the most glorious message. Whereas my distant cousin, twice removed who was a Jehovah Witness. He became a Jehovah Witness at the age of 18 in the Royal Air Force during the Second World War. He was proselytized by the JWs. Died just a few years ago. He vowed to knock on someone's door with the Watchtower magazine every day of his remaining life, and he did. 70 years of it. Just imagine it. A stupendously ineffective method with an absurdly antiquated publication containing a ludicrously incredible end times message. But he did it conscientiously, without the slightest embarrassment, with no hesitation, every day, for 70 years. Why? Because you and I are tested, but he is not. Now, despite these warnings, we are encouraged to speak hope and show love. Let me apply this quite counterintuitively. In our overt faith-sharing programs, like Alpha, what we're looking for in the team are people who will show love in action and form embryonic Christian community to help people in belonging while they're on the road to believing. So the small groups on Alpha, they're not teaching groups. The speaker talks do that. They are groups to show a quality of compassion and relationship that reinforces the talks with integrity, friendship, forming community. So if you're the kind of person who says, I'm no good at talking about my faith, but I want to show it in love, you're just the person we want on the Alpha team. On the other hand, in our community ministries, what we're looking for in the teams are people who can't help themselves gossiping the gospel. If you're the kind of person who, as you lift a girl up from the pavement who's had too much to drink on a Friday night, can't help yourself saying... You know, the person who will really meet your thirst for life is Jesus. You whisper it in her ear. Then, you're just the person we want on night pastors. In technical terms, our gospel-sharing ministry teams need natural pastors. Our community ministry teams need natural evangelists. There is, of course, a time be good news more than to speak the good news, and vice versa. And there's a discretion in certain situations to be more reactive than proactive. Peter's clear instruction in the first letter of Peter is that we should all and always be responsive, prepared to give a defense when called to give an account for the hope that's in us, but not necessarily taking the initiative. A good rule of thumb when to be responsive rather than initiating conversation is when our audience is a captive one. Children in our family, patients in a hospital bed, young people in school, prisoners in a cell. If they can't easily escape our company, they may fall into this category. And of course there's a matter of judgment whether I, rather than another person, should say this or that, or do this or that, and whether this or that approach would be welcome, appropriate, relevant, and helpful. And have I earned the right to speak, and is my life consistent with my words?" But all those considerations don't apply to some of us wearing particular uniforms or exercising particular ministries. They apply to all of us in every circumstance at all times. And such love, speaking and showing hope to the world around us, is dynamite.